0: Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching Podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. Well, we finished 1 Corinthians last week, and so I said, let's do Haggai. So I want to begin by telling you guys a story that evokes some memories. Um, I don't know where you guys were when 9/11 hit, 2001, September 11th. Um, it, you know, it's a, it's an image of terrorism. Um, it was it was a day of pain in our nation. Um, the Aon Corporation that day had 175 employees And They were supposed to show up at work, and there was one lady named. Her name was Debbie Archambaud, and she worked on the 92nd floor of the Twin Towers, the South Tower. And she was scheduled to begin her day at 9 o'clock a.m. So she would have been one of the ones that would have died. But she switched her schedule that day with a friend. And the normal bus she took every day to Manhattan, which was two blocks away, was running just a few minutes late. And she got off the bus... She went to go get a muffin. She, she didn't take her normal route. She's like, you know what, I'm just going to stop and get a muffin today. So she really wasn't, she wasn't supposed to work that morning, but she switched with a friend. Her bus was a little late. She decided to stop and get a muffin, and then as she turned the corner to go to work, she heard the sound of explosions and saw the mayhem of 9-11 and, and all the smoke and everything come, screaming people running for their lives. And This is what she wrote. Um, it, was in, it was in a newspaper article. Minuscule details, a late bus and a muffin saved my life. Who would have thought that a normal delay like that would have been something that saved a person's life? And so I I had to ask a question, how many times has God in his providence quote-unquote delayed us and actually protected us from some unforeseen tragedy? We, We may not be able to count those times that God's done that. So sometimes being delayed's a good thing, right? Like you're delayed from getting killed in 9/11, that's a good thing. On television they have what's called a tape delay. Do you guys know what a tape delay is? In case somebody on live television, you know, drops a cuss word, they can they have like a 5 second delay, they can edit it before it goes on live television. That's that's good. Uh, a delay. But what if the delay that we experience comes from complacency or disobedience and it prevents us from glorifying god um, a lot of times parents will use the count to three method to get their kid to do something i don't we don't we never use that you know why we didn't use the count to three method it it teaches delayed obedience because what you basically do is okay one two and then what do they know when you get to three you really mean it so it teaches them to wait until you really mean it and so we basically just said, Aiden. You need to do it now, and we never counted. And so I'm not saying that that's a good parenting method or a bad parenting method, but sometimes it can actually force us to have delayed obedience. And so one of the questions that we've got to ask tonight when we look at the book of Haggai, is there such a thing as delayed obedience amongst God's children, where we put off obeying? And we complacently wait around until we decide to obey Him on our own terms. And we would have to say, yes. There is such a thing as delayed obedience. Now, most of us would not admit that we would outright defiantly disobey God, but how many times do we have this attitude? God, I'll get around to it when I feel like it. Or God, you're laughing, God, I'll get around to it when it's convenient. I think that my personal comfort and my security and my happiness is more important than obeying you, God. And so I know you're important, God. I know you want me to obey and to glorify you, but it can wait. There's more pressing matters. Now, none of us would actually stand up and say, oh, yeah, we think that. But how many often do we really think that? And that's what the book of Haggai deals with. It deals with the nation of Israel who were complacent and they delayed in their obedience and getting busy in rebuilding the temple. Okay? So here's the main idea from Haggai. When confronted with the sin of complacency, God's people respond with spirit-prompted Obedience. Now we're going to look at that. The Holy Spirit plays a huge role in this Old Testament book. Come on in, ladies. Come on in. But before we dive into Haggai, I want to give you some historical context, just in case we need to kind of know our Old Testament. If you remember the nation of Israel, they had the kings. And all these kings were wicked. There were a few good kings. But eventually, what happened to the nation? It split into two. The northern kingdom goes into exile. The southern kingdom, where Jerusalem was the, the capital, what happens? Babylon, under Nebuchadnezzar, comes in and destroys the temple, destroys the wall, takes all of them, most of them, into Babylonian captivity. So the temple's destroyed in the Babylonian conquest. And so they are suffering 70 years in Babylonian exile. After that, a remnant of Israelites is allowed to return to Jerusalem, and they're allowed to begin rebuilding Jerusalem, the destroyed city. And so if you go to Ezra chapter 3, we won't go there, but Ezra chapter 3, we find that the people start to build. They start to kind of lay the foundation. They, they begin the rebuilding project, but they're, 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 they're halted. They, it comes to a grinding halt because there's opposition. So they, they kind of gave a half-hearted attempt, but when opposition came, they said, we're just going to stop. And so it had lain in ruin for 16 years. Kind of like they started to build, got scared, and then 16 years went by, and they just kind of got complacent. And so the whole issue is God's house is laying in ruins. What are you going to do about it, Israel? You've been the privilege of coming back to the land. You need to rebuild the temple. And we'll talk about the significance of the temple, but complacency had set in. So let's read Haggai chapter 1. And if you don't know where Haggai is, we found out earlier that none of us knew where it was. It's between Zephaniah and Zechariah. You can use your table of contents. Haggai chapter 1. And really, this is divided into two parts. 1 through 11 shows their complacency. And then verses 12 through 15, we see the people responding. So, so let's, let's look at verses 1 through 11. Let's just read all of chapters. There's just two chapters to Haggai. I'm not sure how far we're going to get tonight with just two chapters, but we'll see how far we get. I hope to finish it all, but we may not. So let's, let's begin. In the second year of Darius, the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet, to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Now, let me just stop. That's not Joshua that seceded Moses and brought him into the promised land. It's a different Joshua. He's the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You've sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house, that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast and on all their labors. Okay, let's just stop right there. We have to, we read this account, and God's coming against them and basically saying, for 16 years, the temples lied in ruins, and you're complacent. So as we read this account, we've got to begin asking some questions. Very important questions. That will help us evaluate our own lives and how we may be practicing delayed obedience. Or the sin of complacency in areas where God has spoken. So for example, we we don't know the answer to this, but why? What took them so long to get around to it? Why 16 years? And what happens that makes them change their mind to begin building? Think about the visual imagery. If you guys go over and look at Subway, where they tore down Subway, and then now they're, for like a couple days, it was just rubble, right? What would happen if every day we drove by Subway and it just, there was just rubble? And there's the new building over there, but the rubble keeps staying. And then month after month, the rubble stays. And pretty soon, you're just kind of, you drive by the rubble and you're like, well, there's rubble. And the subway, I guess subway's never going to open. Oh, well, we, we don't miss subway. 16 years has passed by, and there's still rubble. How easy it is to just kind of say, okay, well, yeah, we should have gotten busy rebuilding the temple, but it's lying in rubble over there. We started it 16 years ago, but we're more concerned with us than with God and his house. So from this passage, we see three major movements are three major issues in chapter 1 that illustrate for us the sin of complacency followed by spirit prompted obedience. Now, chapters 1 through, I mean verses 1 through 11 show their complacency. But let's read 12 through 15 and we'll see the spirit prompted obedience. And I use that wording very carefully, okay? So let's let's pick up and read verses 12 through the end of the chapter. and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. It's real easy. Haggai comes to them and says, you're complacent, you're not building. Then they begin to build, because the... Spirit had moved in their hearts to prompt them to do that. So let's look at this. Here's the first thing we see. Number one, we see that the sovereign Lord sends his prophet to rebuke the people. Okay? Look at verse one here. You've got the time frame. In the second year of Darius, the king, the sixth month, this is around August 29th, 520 B.C. We've got the exact date. If you go back and look at history, where Darius was the king of the Persian Empire, this is a time of political stability. It's a time of political stability for Israel. There's no wars. There's no invaders. It's a time of peace and prosperity, which should tell you something. In Times of peace and prosperity, how God's people sometimes respond. It says, The word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai. Isn't that a weird expression? The text says, The word of the Lord came by the hand. Now, How does a hand bring a word? He's not writing this down per se. It's an expression. This is an emphatic way of showing that Haggai didn't just make this message up, but it originated from the very heart and purpose of God, and it became active through God's mouthpiece to rebuke his people. So Haggai is a prophet, a mouthpiece of God, and he comes to rebuke them. Now why do I mention this word rebuke? Where do you see the word rebuke? We see it in the grammar. When it says thus says the Lord of hosts verse 2, these people say the time is not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. When God, when it says thus says the Lord, the ESV says thus says when it says in verse 2 Thus says the Lord of hosts. The thus says there is in a Hebrew tense called the perfect tense in Hebrew which connotes decisive, definite action or rebuke. So God is coming to them, not gently, but coming in a rebuke saying, I'm speaking. Time is up. You've been complacent long enough. And what's he called? He's called the Lord of hosts. Thus says the Lord of hosts. Hosts, this expression is used 14 times in this book and it carries the idea of a sovereign monarch reigning on his throne with a vast array of armies at his disposal and who controls the destiny of the universe. And so God is coming to them as the sovereign God rebuking them for their complacency. And there's a play on words here. What does he say? Thus says the Lord, the people say... It's not time. But God says, it's time. So here's the play on words in this verse. The seriousness of the rebuke. God has been decisive and definite in his command for them to rebuild the temple. Thus says the Lord, it is time for you to rebuild. And what do the people do? They respond with the same decisiveness by saying, no, God, it's not time to build. Do you see how they're playing God there? God comes and says, it's time to build. No, it's not, God. It's not time to build. That's kind of scary. The word time in the Hebrew there, God says, and I just kind of told you that, the word time there carries the idea for the people. It it wasn't an opportune time. Think about that for a moment. God says, it's time. And what do they say? God, it's not really convenient for us. Could you pick a better time? Could you, could you, could you, can we wait a little bit longer? I know, God, you've come to us and you've, you've been decisive and you're rebuking us and you're saying, it's time to build. But God, really, we understand that, but it's just not a good time. It's just not convenient. And they didn't outright say no to God, did they? Did they say no to God? It was a delayed obedience. We will obey when we get around to it. You see how that's a little slippery? Most of the times, we as Christians aren't going to say, no, God. Because most of us don't say no to God. Maybe we do. But a lot of times, how often do we say, well, let's just wait, God. I'll get around to it when I feel like it. Not right now, God. There's not that immediate obedience. So one commentator says it this way. The dispute was not over whether the temple should be rebuilt. That was not not an issue. But whether the appropriate time for doing so had yet arrived. Another writer says they were saying no. They they were not saying no, but not yet. And then Martin Luther has been rumored to say, how soon not now becomes never. (laughs) Now here's the issue. What's the whole issue here that they're supposed to be doing? Rebuilding the temple. What was the temple? Why is this so important in that time of redemptive history? The temple was the national emblem of God's manifest presence among the people. And to refuse to rebuild the temple was showing that they could live life without God. It was basically functional atheism. Can you you see what's going on here? They would never say, we don't believe in God. They would never say, oh, we don't need God. We don't need God's presence. We don't need God's help. We don't need to worship God. They would never outright say that by them not building the temple. What were they saying? God can wait. He's important, but he can wait. And so we need to ask the question, why were they waiting? Why weren't they getting around to it right away? Was there... Economic pressure preventing them from building? Was there a dire national emergency? Was there a threat of war? If you remember back when when we preached through Nehemiah, there's a lot of things going on against Nehemiah, right? When Nehemiah was rebuilding the wall, you had all of these nations coming against them and fighting against them, and, and there was all this opposition. So you may be thinking to yourself, well, the reason they've waited 16 years to rebuild the wall or rebuild the temple here is because there's opposition There's people coming against them. They're afraid. But here's the issue. When you go back and study history, and we've got the exact dates here, we see that Israel back in the land after exile was relatively at peace and stability under Persian rule. And if the date is correct here of August 29th, the harvest season is over and the people are not overly busy. We find out from Ezra chapter 4 that the political threat from Samaria was resolved. It didn't cause them any reason for alarm. We can only speculate why they didn't do it right away. But I want you to think about something. When you delay obedience, does it sometimes become comfortable not to obey? And then doesn't that lead to guilt? I should be obeying. I'm not. I'm guilty because I'm not but I'm just going to keep disobeying because it's a this vicious cycle. And so we, don't, we can't get into the psychology of why they're doing this, but basically they were probably taking matters into their own hands. It's interesting. Was there any debate about whether they should rebuild the temple or not? I mean, was it something they had to sit around and wait for God? To, did God have to show up? To, did God even need to send prophet Haggai to them to tell them to rebuild the temple? This was something they should have done immediately when they got back. There was no question. But, but I want you to think about something. Oftentimes, we delay obedience in our lives and clear issues mandated by the Scriptures because we want, quote, a word from the Lord. We want to see the blinding light. We want to hear the powerful voice. We want to feel some type of mystical impression. We want to sometimes get this nod to move forward. And so there's some things that we're just waiting for God. If God, if you just gave me a sign, I'd do it. Let me ask you, does God have to give you a sign to to, to do evangelism? Does God have to give you a sign to um, display the fruit of the Spirit? I mean, there's some things that the Bible is clear on, but how many people don't do what's clear? Here's the thing that frustrates me a lot of times as a pastor. Oftentimes people will come into my office for pastoral counseling, and, and, and they really want to know God's will for their lives. I think I tell you this all the time. I just want to know God's will for my life. If God he could just show me, if God could just speak to me, if God he could just give me a sign, I would really want to know God's will for my life. I really want to do what he wants for my future. And I begin to ask some probing questions. Okay, tell me about your life right now. Well, my boyfriend and I are living together, and I got pregnant by another woman, by another guy, and you know, I go gambling on the weekends and I'm an alcoholic. I'm, I mean I'm kind of exaggerating, but there's all these, I find out that, okay. There's some clear things here that you're not obeying in scripture. So why do you think God's going to give you some mystical direction when you're not obeying the clear thing? Who knows? Maybe they were sitting there waiting for maybe Haggai wasn't enough. Maybe they were waiting for like this blinding light to come from the mountain like Moses and say build the temple and it never showed up. And so, who knows why they are delaying. But here's the second thing. Not only does God Rebuke them, but he reasons with them. This entire section, verses 3 through 11, can be subdivided into four headings to illustrate how the Lord reasons with his people. Now, there's, it's interesting how God acts here. Sometimes as a parent, do you reason with your kids? Sometimes you just go in and tell them what to do, right? Just do it. But other times, you can reason with them and say, let's think this through. Let me challenge you on this. Let's sit down and let's, let's think this through. And this is what God does with Israel. He goes, let's think some things through here. I want you to think about what's going on here. And so God takes them on this little journey to, to reason, to think about all the things that are going on in their lives. And so here's the first thing in verses 3 through 4 that God reasons with them. They have misplaced priorities. Look at, look at what's going on. Verses 3 through 4. The word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Consider your ways. Think about what you're doing. You've got misplaced priority. What are they doing? They are living where? In paneled houses which was a huge deal back then. They were making sure that their personal homes are up to speed, but yet God's house is lying in ruins. We've got the manicured lawn. We've got our brand-new gutter and siding. We've got the paneled houses. We've got the air conditioning. We've got the two-car garage. Our house is pristine We've spent so much time and energy making sure our houses look great. And God's saying, you're putting so much energy into your own individual houses that the house, my house, the temple, you're neglecting the temple. And God reasons with them. Here's what's going on. They have neglected the rebuilding of the temple for a far greater priority in their lives, personal comfort and security in their own homes. Now, here's the issue. They're acting as individuals. And as a nation of Israel, you don't act as individuals. You act as a covenant people. And so this is the height of arrogance for God's covenant people to be individually working on their own homes instead of coming together to to build the house of the Lord. And it makes me think about sometimes as Christians, we can have this privatized Lone Ranger mentality where, where we don't hold ourselves accountable in covenant relationship. We don't, we don't get in each other's lives. Oftentimes, we're so seduced by the American dream that we're more into consumerism than we are into loving one another and serving one another and, and, and having a close-knit bond of fellowship. We can come to church. We can come and sit and watch the show and never talk to anybody and leave and never have relationships and never have deep, deep uh, community. And so the Lord comes to the people through Haggai and he says, consider your ways. And really, verse 4 is a question that should have a rhetorical no: Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your panel houses while this house lies in ruins? And the answer would be, no, it's not a time. Consider your ways. Think about, reason about, consider, consider your ways. All right. The second experience is the fruit of their disobedience. We see this displayed in verses 5 through 6. Look at verse 5. Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You've sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them in a bag with holes. Verse 5 the Lord again reasons with them, says, Consider your ways. There's an urgency conveyed in how this is worded in the Hebrew language. Consider your ways, your lifestyle. And then in verse 6, God reminds them of the fruit of their disobedience. What's going on in verse 6? You guys are working like dogs. To try to make money, to try to build, you know, grow crops. You, you eat, you never get filled. You drink, you never have enough. You, you buy clothes, but your pockets are you got holes. You're, everything's not going right for you. You're trying, you're consuming, you're consuming, you're consuming, but you're never satisfied. And so God's kind of being a little, playing with them here a little bit. But basically, what He's saying is this. You're embroiled in materialism and consumerism. You're paneling your houses. You're enjoying the good things of life. You're trying to satisfy yourself with consuming. But here's what happens. You find yourself empty. As you pursue the American dream of getting more and more stuff, you keep finding the more stuff you get, the emptier you feel, the less you have, and it doesn't satisfy. Now, is God being literal here or is he being metaphorical? I think it would be both. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have refill. You clothe yourselves, but no one's warm. You sow, but you harvest little. This could literally be the fact that they're not materially, crop-wise, food-wise, getting what they need. But it could be metaphorically saying, you're consuming yourself with all these things, and they don't satisfy. Now, in 7 through 8, we see the command to actually rebuild the temple. Verse 7, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. He says it again. Think about what you're doing. And then God gets real practical. He says, go up to the hills, go find wood, build the house that I may take pleasure in it, and that I may be glorified. Now, here's what they probably had to do. Because the temple still lied in ruins, they probably had to go clear out a lot of the rocks so they had to clear the the, the area to, to put the foundation, but they would probably have to go scavenger up in the hills to find timber or lumber to come down and start building the house. And God says, be practical, actually get up off your fannies and go start getting stuff to build this. Um, you, you, you probably, I mean, think about it. You're spending all this time and energy on your own house. Now get busy on my house is what God is saying. And then... In verses 9 through 11, we find the reason for their troubles. They're having troubles. Verse 9, You looked for much, and beheld, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts? Because of my house that lies in ruins. While each of you busies, that's a key word, busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast and all their labors. They were busying themselves on their house. It's interesting that word. The word busying or busies, it's continuous action. It consumed all their time and energy. They were obsessed with making much of their own houses while the real house that should have been much was lying in a wasteland. And what does God do? God sovereignly comes in his providence and withholds rain and causes them to have problem with their harvest. He says, the reason you guys are having um, famine and and no harvest and and no crops is because I'm doing it. I have withheld. I've called for a drought. Psalm 135, 6, whatever the Lord pleases, he does. In heaven and on earth and the sea and all the depths. Now, here's another play on words. The Hebrew language likes to use a lot of play on words. Look at verse 11. What does God say? I have called for a drought. What's a drought? No, no rain. What does a drought cause? The crops to lie in ruins. The same word for ruins is the same word for drought. Drought. So God's saying, okay, if my house is going to be a drought, your crops are going to be a drought. If my house lies in ruins, your crops are going to lie in ruins. And I'm doing this. You're suffering the consequences. I'm causing you to suffer the consequences of your disobedience because my house is lying in ruins. You've caused a drought on my house. I'm causing a drought on your crops. It's a little play on words there. And so... In this section, God comes with the rebuke. God comes with the reasoning. They're complacent. They're rebellious. They're apathetic. They need to be wakened up. Now, life could go on. How many years has it been? 16 years. It could go on another 16 years. But what does God say there? Look at verse 8. Why does He want the house built? Why does He want the temple built? It's in the temple that I take pleasure and then I show my glory. Now, in that period of redemptive history, it's important to remember that the temple was the be-all end-all, where God's glory and God's presence and God's majesty manifest itself to the people. Uh, so in that period of time in Israel's history, God p- was pleased to dwell in the temple where his glory would. But here's what's going on. They were functional atheists. God's dwelling place could lie in ruins. Their delayed obedience was really saying that it didn't matter to them if God was truly with them. It doesn't matter if God was truly with them. And yet, here's the beauty of this verse. Here's the beauty of this chapter. God does not leave them to their own devices to somehow pull themselves up by their own bootstraps to muster enough strength and fervor to begin the rebuilding project, which leads us to our third issue. So what's, the, what's, the, what's, the, what's going on here They're complacent. They're materialistic. They're delayed in their obedience. They're not outright saying, God, we don't, we don't, we're saying, they're not saying no, they're just saying not right now. It's not convenient. We're too concerned with our houses. We're too concerned with our stuff. Don't, don't, don't ask any more commitment in me, God, because I've got so much stuff in my own life to deal with. But what needs to happen? The temple needs to be built. And is God going to give them the resources to do that? Is he just going to say, okay, you're on your own now. Go build it. Now, here's the third thing we see. The sovereign Lord, first of all, he rebukes his people. He reasons with his people. The third thing is he renews his people. And he does this in three ways. First of all, in verse 12, the people respond in obedient fear. Look at verse 12. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, what did they do? They obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent them, and the people feared the Lord. They responded in obedience and in fear. I want you to pay close attention to a detail in the text. If you read carefully, sometimes if you read real carefully, you can see that how these, these, these texts give you really great hints into things. There's a change in the wording. Notice in verse 12, what does it say? They obeyed the voice of their God. In the preceding verses, did they really believe it was their God? You're God, and yeah, you're kind of important, but not right now. It's switched. You see how a difference it was? Before, in the preceding verses, God will get around to it when we want to. Yeah, don't bug us, God. Get off our backs, God. It's not a good time. And now it immediately changes to a new response. What is it now? We're obeying my God. It's now their God, and they're doing it with fear. They obeyed the Lord. It comes with a mixture of fear. They had been woken up. They've been they've been rebuked. They've been wakened out of their apathy. Psalm thirty-six, one through two. Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes, for he flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. Some people. That was the way they were they were operating before, right? We don't have any real fear of God. We'll get, God will get around to it when we want to. It's not a big deal. There's not urgency. We really don't have a fear. We don't have a deep-seated passion. We don't have a commitment to do that. We'll get around to it when it's time. But now, when they realize what they've been doing, there's some fear. Do you think it, like, struck them? Think about just the paradigm shift it would have taken. Day after day, you walk past the rubble heap for 16 years. And all of a sudden God comes to you with a rebuke and says, You've been spending a whole lot more time on your own houses while mine is in ruins, and that's the reason you're having a drought. Their eyes opened and they began to say, Whoa. Okay, we better get busy and obeying. We fear the Lord. Hebrews 10:31, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. You see, back in verse 2, when they say, It's not time. They're nonchalant, complacent, disinterested. They're not displaying a fear of the Lord. We'll get around to it when we want to. Casual. So why this drastic change? Why the drastic change? But I also want you to know something else. Not only do they respond in obedience and fear, but in verse 13, they're reminded of God's presence. This is very, very important. Look at verse 13. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message, I am with you, declares the Lord. That's a very, very important verse. God comes to them and says, I am with you. This was something they had forgotten. Because what did the temple, what was the, what was the whole purpose of the temple? The temple equated God's presence with them. And since it was sitting in ruins, what could they not do? Worship. No sacrificial system, no worship, no holy of holies. None of the the things that made Israel operate in, in a living relationship with God. There was no intimacy or closeness to God. But what does God say? I'm not waiting for you to build the temple to be with you. That's just a symbol. I'm with you. I'm going to give you the power. I'm going to give you the encouragement. I'm going to give you the hope. Now, at this point, we need to ask a very important question. What actually prompted the change in the people? How did they go from casual disinterest, I'll get around to it, God, to this engaged, quick, Fearful obedience. What brought about the fear of the Lord? Did they just have great spiritual intuition? Was there something within them that just kind of moved them? They had the gusto? No, it's interesting. What we see here is a beautiful marriage between two things that happen today. The Word and the Spirit. The Word of God and the Spirit of God operate together to bring about this change. Now, you may ask, well, where do you see that? Well, what did God do first? God first confronted them with this operative and powerful word, the prophet Haggai. What did, what did Haggai do? He comes and says, thus says the Lord of hosts, And then God speaks to them. So God gives them his word. So when God comes with his word, what does it do? Hebrews 4.12 tells us what God's word does when it comes to us. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirits of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. That's what happened to them. God's Word came like that dagger and pierced them and laid them bare to where they were like, oh my goodness, we have been complacent, we have been materialistic, we have been disengaged, we've been exposed by the Word. And that's what God's Word does to us. That's what happens when you sit under good preaching, when you listen to the the Scriptures, when you read your Bible. When God's Word comes to you, it's going to confront you and open your eyes in areas that you need to change. All of us can give examples of that of how the Word exposes us. But it's not only the Word. It's the Word with the Spirit. Look at verse 14. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the spirit of Joshua, and the spirit of the people. Now, the people are revived by the Spirit to obey. Now, the word spirit there, the word spirit in Hebrew is ruach. It's a very elastic word. It can mean breath. It can mean spirit. Or it can mean Holy Spirit. So I'm making an interpretive choice here in how I interpret Haggai. I personally believe that this wasn't where they mustered it up within themselves. I believe this is a Holy Spirit prompted thing within them to do this. That you've got the Holy Spirit coming and igniting their hearts to do this. I think the Lord... Stirred up the Holy Spirit stirred up their spirits. You understand what I'm saying? The the Holy Spirit came and prompted them to do that. So, in other words, the people in and of themselves, they did not initiate this sudden change, but God initiated it. He was the prime mover in the experience. The word stirred here means they were roused from their sleep. Were they sleepy? Are you guys sleepy tonight? You know, we see a pattern in redemptive history and you see it throughout. Well, they were quickened. Wait just a minute. Did I get too fast? Oh, yeah. I put some good wording in here. They were quickened from their complacency. They were awakened from their apathy. They were stirred from their slumber. But we see a pattern in redemptive history. We see it in church history. We see it today. God always uses this pattern. How does God operate when His people are living in obedience and complacency? When God brings about revival, when God brings about renewal, when God does a work among His complacent people, when you look at the Scriptures, especially the Old Testament, when you look at church history, when you look at the revivals and the spiritual awakenings, what does God do? What's the pattern? Well, we see the pattern here in Haggai. He first sends His Word to rebuke and confront them in their sin. And then he moves upon their hearts to bring about a spirit prompted obedience that results in reverent fear and worship. That leads to concrete obedience. So you see the pattern that God does? If God's people are complacent, what are the only two things that are going to rouse them? Is it a motivational speaker giving a pep talk? Is it guilt? It's the Word of God rightly preached or taught accompanied by the Holy Spirit. The only tools we've got. And so if anything's going to bring about revival or change or obedience, it's not going to be man-made manipulation. It's not going to be marketing techniques. It's going to be the faithful preaching of God's Word to confront people, to wake them up, and then the Holy Spirit's going to come and either bring new birth to lost people or he's going to renew, save people and give them this new energized obedience and it leads to concrete action. What did they do? Well, we'll see in the next chapter they actually build the temple. It leads to, it leads to um, action. But here's an issue. Think about how they were feeling at this time. They probably went through a trauma, didn't they? For 16 years we've been guilty. We've been complacent. We've been selfish. We've been so consumed with our own homes. God has spoken. The Holy Spirit has come. We've been renewed. In times of personal and corporate failure and sin, in times of hardship and suffering, one of the greatest assurances of hope we can find is the promise that God says there, I am with you. I'm not abandoning you. I've not given up on you. Every true child of God longs to hear the words, what? I am with you. Throughout scriptures, God's wayward people have heard these refreshing words. I am with you. Jacob, who we looked at Sunday morning and we'll look at it again this week. He was a heel-grabbing liar who rebelled against God at every turn until he received these words at Bethel. Genesis 28, 15. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land for I have not, will not leave you until I have done what I promised you. What does Jacob hear from God? I am with you. Okay? What is Joseph here? Joseph was left for dead. He was sold into slavery by his brothers. He was falsely accused of rape by Potiphar's wife. He was in prison. He experienced extreme suffering. But God's presence was his comfort. What does God say to him in Genesis 39-2? The Lord was with Joseph and he became a successful man and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. The Lord was with Joseph. I am with you. What about Moses? When Moses was commissioned by God to go to Egypt and lead the people out of captivity, he heard these comforting words from the burning bush. Exodus 3.12. But I will be with you. And this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you when you have brought the people out of Egypt. You shall serve God on this mountain. Jacob heard, I will be with you. Joseph heard, I will be with you. Moses heard, I will be with you. What about Joshua when he's about ready to stand on the banks of the Jordan to cross over and occupy the land? His knees are knocking. He's filled with fear and trembling. What does he hear from the Lord as he's about ready to take the promised land? In Joshua 1.5, no man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life, just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. What about David? When God told David that he would have an everlasting covenant and a kingly dynasty, he heard these comforting words in 2 Samuel 7, 9, And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all of your enemies from before you, and I will make for you a great name like the name of the great ones of the earth. I will be with you. Jacob heard it. Joseph heard it. Moses heard it. Joshua heard it. David heard it. The ultimate expression... Jacob wrestled with God. But the true Israel, Jesus, was the one that died for our sins. Joseph was humiliated and sacrificed to save many people. But Jesus was the ultimate sacrifice and provides eternal salvation for his people. Moses ascended the mountain to deliver God's law, but the second Moses descended up Mount Calvary to fulfill the law and to die and live a perfect life of righteousness. Joshua was the military conqueror that led the victory into the promised land. Jesus is our conqueror who's led us in to eternal life. And David is the king of Israel, but Jesus is the true king of Israel. So what is the ultimate consummation of, I will be with you? What was announced at Christ at his birth? Matthew 23. Behold a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. Every true child of God longs to hear the words I am with you. And every Old Testament saint that we looked at heard the words. And we don't have to just hear the words but the word became flesh and dwelt among us to be the I will always be with you. What were Jesus' last words in the Great Commission before He went back up to heaven? Matthew 28, 20. And behold, I am with you always into the end of the age. So what do the people need to hear most? I am with you, and I'm going to give my Holy Spirit in you And you are going to rebuild this temple. You've failed. 16 years of failure. 16 years of materialism. 16 years of complacency. 16 years of putting me off. But I've not abandoned you because you're my people. So I am with you. And I'm with you through the power of the Holy Spirit in you. That was for them. But for us, it's even greater because not only do we have the Holy Spirit within us, but we have Christ, the ultimate I am with you to the end of the age, whose name means God with us so what is this promise of christ being our manual god with us impact us today what does this tell us about the beauty of the gospel it tells us this we can obey with spirit prompted obedience because of what christ has first done for us in the gospel Before we are commanded to live out our obedience to Christ, we must first be amazed at what He's done for us in the cross to free us and to give us a new identity in Him. So how can we truly truly succeed in obeying Christ? There's power in the gospel which grants us spirit-prompted obedience. That's a promise. I will be with you. I will stir up your spirit, you can obey. All of the promises of God are fulfilled in Christ who in turn has given us his Holy Spirit to work in us his obedience. What is 2 Corinthians 1, 20-22? For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why through Him that we utter our amen to God for His glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put a seal on us and given us His Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. What has God given to us in our hearts as a guarantee? The Holy Spirit. So that every promise that God has is yes and amen in Christ who has been given to us through the power of the Holy Spirit so we can do what God calls us to do. And when we fail... God doesn't say, I'm going to abandon you. He says, I'm with you. Let me just stir up your heart to do it through what Christ has done because all the promises are yes and amen. So, our complacency, just like their complacency, can be cured through spirit-prompted obedience as a result of the gospel of grace through our connection to the true temple of Jesus Christ. And we do not respond with the delayed obedience that casually seeks our own comfort and security on our own tithe table, but with an immediate, passionate, and urgent spirit-prompted obedience that seeks the glory of Christ. So when the, when the Lord and Savior says to do something, what should our answer be before we even hear it? Yes, Lord. And how can we obey with immediacy and with urgency? The power of the Holy Spirit. Okay. So chapter 1 is... You're complacent. You're building your own houses. The, the temple lies in ruins. Then God sends the Word, sends the Spirit. They're revived through the power of the Holy Spirit. To, to, and God promises them, I'm with you. And then they begin to rebuild. Look at the end of verse 14. They came and worked on the house of the Lord their host on the 24th day of the month and the 6th month and the 2nd year of Darius the king. They got busy. Now let's go into chapter 2. We got time. You guys ready? All right, chapter 2. In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, Who's left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? It is nothing. Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel! Declares the Lord, be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land! Declares the Lord, work, for I am with you. Hear it again, declares the Lord of hosts. According, why is God doing this? According to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. Remember what I had just done in the last chapter? I gave you my spirit to prompt you. It's still there. It's remaining in your midst. Fear not. Don't be afraid. For thus says the Lord of hosts, Yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land and I will shake all the nations so that the treasures of all the nations shall come in and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Okay, what's going on here in the second chapter? God comes to them again, and remember back in Ezra, the temple came to a grinding halt. It had been 16 years, and now they're getting busy, busy ready to, to, to rebuild it. But in verses 1 through 5 of chapter 2, God is calling the people to look back to the former glory of the temple. And he's saying some of you may still be alive. Now, I know some of you are, were little and you don't quite remember, but some of you are old enough to look back and remember I think scholars would say that some of the people um, may have been around, the youngest were probably the youngest people to remember would have been around fifty five years old, so some of you are in that you know you were maybe a little kid and you remember the glory of the temple in the glory days when the sacrificial system was going on when there was the temple sacrifices and all the festivals. But what does it look like now? It's lying in ruins. And they need to be strengthened by the Holy Spirit to practically do the work of the temple. What does he say there? I am with you. Verse six, verse 5, my spirit remains in you, fear not. So the Holy Spirit would continue to be with them. We need to remember something, that when the Holy Spirit gives us strength, it involves not only an inner attitude of joy and hope, like that inner strength, but it also translates into practical action and obedience. Transformation always leads to a changed life with concrete action. What was the whole point? They needed to build. So what would happen if the Holy Spirit just gave them a warm fuzzy and they just sat around and twiddled their thumbs and didn't do anything? Would there be true evidence of transformation? They may have felt better. And they may have this inner strength. Oh, I feel really good. But what does the Holy Spirit lead them to do? Not just be strengthened, but to actually do the obedience, to to follow through. It's kind of like what James says in James 1.22. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, so deceiving yourselves. Think about how despondent they would have been. Those older people that remember the glory days of the temple. They need to be reminded of the constant presence of the Holy Spirit in their lives. Now, it says here God's going to shake the heavens and the earth. Don't ask me if I take that literally or metaphorically. I think you can take it both ways. Oftentimes, the shaking of the heavens and earth is a metaphorical way of saying God's going to do a new thing by establishing governments and bringing things about revival and renewal um, it could relate to the very end times when God is going to do something. Uh, we, we really don't know. Just God's going to do something. But we do know that this passage of Scripture is quoted in Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 12, 26-29 talks about it quotes this passage in Haggai. At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase yet once more indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. And this is the important thing. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer worship acceptable to God with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. So however we take this, basically God's saying, I'm doing a new thing. And it's going to involve the temple, it's going to involve worship. It's going to involve my kingdom. Now, here's a very, very important verse. What does verse 9 tell us? Verse 9 says, The latter glory of the temple will be greater than the former. Meaning what? This new temple is going to have more glory than even the old temple. We've got to wrestle with this. What in the world does this mean? Well, what is this whole thing about the glory in the temple? If you go back in the Old Testament when the tabernacle was being built in Exodus, all the way up through when the temple permanently was being built, the Shekinah glory cloud rested on the Holy of Holies, which was the very center part of the tabernacle in the temple. The glory of God was a physical reminder that God was in their presence, that God lived among them. So to have God's glory was the Shekinah glory of God that revealed his presence, the glory, the glory cloud, if you will. And that was the visible reminder that God's presence was with them, the glory cloud, in, on the temple. But something interesting happens in the book of Ezekiel. In the book of Ezekiel, at the beginning of the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel is given this glorious picture of the glory cloud of the temple. He sees the glory of God in the temple. In Ezekiel one twenty eight, like the appearance of the bow that's in the cloud on the day of rain, so was the appearance of the brightness all around. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face, and I heard the voice of one speaking. Ezekiel gets to see the full glory of the Lord in the temple. Beautiful, glorious sight. But here's something that happens. Because of Israel's sin and idolatry and rebellion, the glory of the Lord left the temple. In Ezekiel chapter 10, Ezekiel sees the glory of the Lord leaving the temple. That glory cloud, that Shekinah glory. So what's been happening between now and then? At that point, Ezekiel's before Haggai. God's glory has left the temple. Now, they're rebuilding a new temple. And what what does Haggai say here? This new temple is going to have greater glory than the old temple because the glory left the old temple. But here's the problem. We find no evidence whatsoever in the Bible that the glory ever returned to the rebuilt temple. So how can... Haggai say this new temple is going to have a greater glory well we must not think of the temple in terms of a physical structure but of something greater so go to John chapter 1 and this prophecy does come true the latter temple will have a glory far greater than the former temple but it's not in a physical structure. It's in a person. John 1.14 And the Word became flesh and tabernacled, dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So Jesus comes back, or Jesus comes to earth, as the new temple with the full glory of God residing. So the glory of the new temple is greater than the glory of the old temple because the glory is not a structure, the glory is a person. The literal word for dwelt among us is temple terminology. It means tabernacle. In other words, John here makes the interpretive assertion that Jesus is the new tabernacle temple, he is the end times temple. Colossians 2 9, for in him the whole fullness of of deity dwells bodily. Go to John chapter 2 for a minute. Look at verses 18 through 22. We don't have to like find mysterious clues here. The Bible tells us. 2 18 through 22. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple. And in three days, I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. What does John tell us there? What is the temple? Jesus. And is the glory... Going to come in a greater way to the new temple than the old temple? Absolutely, because the new temple is going to be Jesus. So John, the gospel writer, believes that the temple is Jesus. What is Paul? How does Paul view the temple? He sees it as something spiritual. We just looked at this in 1 Corinthians 3, 16. Do you not know that you, y'all, you guys, are God's temple, and that God's spirit dwells in you. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. So what is a temple in the New Testament? Is it a building? Or is it us? Is it Jesus or is it us? Yes. But what does a temple mean? The temple is a place where God dwells. in the New Testament. Are we told of any physical rebuilt temple where God would dwell or does the New Testament tell us that the temple is believers and dwelt by the Holy Spirit? 1 Corinthians 6, 19-20. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. And then in Ephesians 2, 19-22, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. The cornerstone of what? The temple in whom the whole structure, temple, being joined together, grows into a holy temple, and the Lord in Him, you're also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So who is the temple? Jesus is the cornerstone. Who is in the temple? We're the temple. Who dwells in us? The Holy Spirit. So is the end times temple that Haggai says is going to have greater glory, more so than the former temple, is it a structure or is it the church with Christ as the cornerstone being empowered by the Holy Spirit? John seems to think so. Paul seems to think so. Well, let's think about what is Peter? How does Peter interpret the temple? 1 Peter 2 4 through 6. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. That's a temple. To be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So, John, Paul, and Peter all see the prophecy about an end times temple being about Jesus and believers, and it is spiritual and not physical in nature. Now, let's go to the end of the Bible. The ultimate consummation of the glory of the temple will be in the new heavens and the new earth. How does Revelation interpret the temple? Revelation 21, 22 through 27. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. So who's the temple? Jesus. Who's the temple? We are. How can we and Jesus both be the temple? If we have union with Christ and God dwells with us in the power of the Holy Spirit, we can mix these metaphors because it's a spiritual reality. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives its light and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk and the kings of the earth bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day and there will be no night. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. So Haggai chapter 2 verse 9, when it talks about this temple, what do they think they're building? They are putting their hope in a physical structure to be rebuilt so they can experience God with us. What do we get to experience? We get the ultimate consummation of God with us. Jesus, the great I am, Emmanuel, comes in the flesh, is the temple. And when we are connected to him by faith, we, like spiritual stones, are being built in the temple to offer worship to him in the power of the Holy Spirit. So therefore, Haggai can say that this new temple is going to have far much greater glory than the old temple because it's going to stretch across the whole world and eventually be in the new heavens and the new earth. That blows your mind right there. These people didn't understand fully what it was. They thought they were just building God a house. It is a direct prophecy about Jesus and the church and our future destiny. Okay? And in verses 10 through 19, God gives them a promise. God is blessing a defiled people. Let's keep reading. Hopefully we have time. On the 20, Verse 10, chapter 2, verse 10. On the 24th day of the ninth month in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. He's going to ask the priest who know the law two, two very obvious questions. Thus says the Lord of hosts, ask the priests about the law. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any other kinds of foods, does it become holy? The priest answered no. Okay, that was a common food law that everybody would have known that it wouldn't be holy because it touched something that wasn't holy. Then Haggai said, If someone who's unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? The priest answered and said, It does become unclean. Then Haggai answered and said, So is it with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord, and so with every work of their hands, and what they offer there is unclean. Now then, consider from this day onward. Before a stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? When one came to a heap of twenty measures, there were but ten. When one came to the wine vat to draw fifty measures, there was only twenty. I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail, yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. Consider from this day onward, from the twenty-fourth day of the ninth month, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider, is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing, but from this day on, I will bless you. Haggai asked the priest two questions that they would all know. If holy food touches something unholy, will it be defiled? The answer is yes. If someone comes in contact with a dead body, will they be defiled? Yes. That was the worst thing that could happen to you. If you came in contact with a dead body, you had to go outside the camp You couldn't celebrate Passover, and you had to go through seven days of a ritual cleansing before you could come back. So it was a big deal. And what God is reminding them is that, hey, I've set you apart as a holy nation. For the sake of time, we won't read that, Exodus 19, 5 through 6, but God set them apart as a holy nation. And what's going on here? Because they had not repented, because they're defiled, because they've been complacent, because they've been disobedient, God again says, you've got poor crops, and the Lord's done it. God is saying, hey, before you lay this foundation, before you even begin building, I just want to remind you something. This temple you're building is not a good luck charm. It's going to make you holy. You still need the inward cleansing that comes through the power of the Holy Spirit. Because even if you start building this, you're going to keep sinning and you're going to be defiled and you need something greater than just a physical structure. And God says, consider... He said it multiple times in this book. Think about what you're doing here in rebuilding the temple. It's not a temple per se that's going to make you a great nation holy. It's my presence. And sometimes people put all their stock in an outward symbol to be right with God. They think church attendance, giving to charity, doing good works, think will make them holy. But the only way we can be accepted by God is through Jesus and the cross and the renewing work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And God says, in the midst of all of your unholiness... In all of your defilement, I'm giving you a great promise. I'm with you. I'm giving you the Holy Spirit. Don't fear. You're unclean, but I'm going to bless you. Not because you deserve it, because I've called you out as a holy people by grace. Now, it ends kind of weird. You may be asked, why does it end this way? Let's look at verse 20. The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel governor of Judah, saying, I'm about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I'm about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nation and overthrow the chariots and their riders and the horses and their riders shall go down, every one by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord, I will make you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shiltiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. This book closes... (laughs) With a word to Zerubbabel, and we wonder what in the world is this all about? Why is it? Why does it end with a message to Zerubbabel? And who cares about Zerubbabel? Two reasons. Very important. Number one, Zerubbabel was in the line of David, and he was the chosen governor slash king of the people. Now they couldn't have a king because they came back from from exile. Darius was the king, so they had a governor, but. The best thing that Israel could have at that time was God's appointed leader over them in the line of David. But what's even more important is if you go back to Matthew chapter one, verse twelve, and Luke chapter three, verse twenty-seven, he's in the genealogy of Jesus. So no Zerubbabel, no Messiah. So God says, "I'm shaking the nations by doing something new. I'm going to bring a king on the throne in the line of David." who's going to bring about the Messiah. This is, again, a direct prophecy of Jesus. And Zerubbabel would be a signet ring. What does that mean? As God's chosen leader. When a king wanted to put his seal on an official document, they would roll up a scroll and then put hot wax on it to seal it and then press the signet ring of the king on it to show that it was official. It's very similar to our presidential seal. And he says, Zerubbabel, I'm choosing you to be the prototype leader who's going to carry the line of David and eventually through you, Jesus is going to be born. So he's a type and shadow of Jesus, Zerubbabel. He was God's chosen one to be the king over his people and to shower us with blessing and to be... What is, what is, what is Zerubbabel? What's the image of Zerubbabel? A king ruling over a rebuilt temple as God's chosen Who's Jesus? God's chosen Messiah ruling over his people as the temple. So he's a type and shadow of Jesus. He's, Jesus is God's seal. Jesus is God's signet ring. Listen to what John 6, 27-29 says. Jesus says, Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal, his signet ring. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him who sent you. So as we get to the end of Haggai, and I know this is a lot to take in, but it's a short little book. You bet you really never knew that Haggai was a gospel-centered book. We have the promise of God with us. We have the promise of the Holy Spirit to move us to obedience. We have the promise of Jesus as the true temple who will come and be the ultimate sacrifice, who will take away our sins and give us access into God's presence. And we have the promise that the glory of the Lord will be what is most important as we seek His face in Christ. So don't ever let anybody tell you you can't see Jesus in the Old Testament. We see him in types and shadows Here is the temple, as Zerubbabel, and the power of the Holy Spirit to a complacent people who God motivated through his word and his spirit to obey, to rebuild the temple, to fulfill God's plan of redemptive history. So that's, that's Haggai. Now you know a whole lot more about Haggai than you thought you'd ever know. In the last few minutes, do we have any questions? I know that was very fast and it's probably hard to digest. And it's Old Testament, so sometimes it takes a while for us to wrap our minds around history and all the things that are going on. But do you guys have any questions? All right. I have no idea what we're going to do next week. We've got two more weeks, so I may do another little short. Do you guys like these little short... You kind of dive into a lot of saying lot of, um, dive into it. I'm trying to think of another short little book that we may deal with, may do I'll figure it out this week what we're going to do. So it'll be a surprise. It'll be something in the Bible next week, <laughs> something short. So let's pray and thank God that we have Haggai in the Bible, and now you guys are an expert in Haggai. Father, thank you for this book. I'm thankful that we can see just a type and shadow of you Jesus, as the true temple as the glory of God the dwelling place of God we can see Holy Spirit how you worked in the hearts of those people to obey even back then and how you can work in our hearts to obey Uh, Father we see the fact that you chose Zerubbabel to be the leader just the way you chose Jesus in the line of David and Zerubbabel to be our leader and Lord I think the greatest thing we see from this is that you promise to be with us to never forsake us that we are reminded I am with you so thank you Father for being with us for never leaving us or forsaking us for being the great I am. And Jesus, for being our manual, God, with us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.